0: Book Two, Chapter Two, Section Eight of Mr. Britling Sees It Through by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Eastman. Eight. While Mr. Britling was trying to find his duty in the routine of a special constable, Mrs. Britling set to work with great energy to attend various classes and qualify herself for Red Cross work. And early in October came the great drive of the Germans toward Antwerp and the sea, the great drive that was apparently designed to reach Calais, and which swept before it multitudes of Flemish refugees. There was an exodus of all classes from Antwerp into Holland and England, and then a huge process of depopulation in Flanders, and the Pas de Calais. This flood came to the eastern and southern parts of England, and particularly to London and there hastily improvised organizations distributed it to a number of local committees, each of which took a share of the refugees, hired and furnished unoccupied houses for the use of the penniless, and assisted those who had means into comfortable quarters. The matching Easy committee found itself with accommodation for sixty people, and with a miscellaneous bag of thirty individuals entrusted to its care, who had been part of the load of a little pirate steamboat from Ostend. There were two Flemish peasant families, and the rest were more or less middle-class refugees from Antwerp. They were brought from the station to the tithe-barn at Claverings, and there distributed, under the personal supervision of Lady Homerton and her agent, among those who were prepared for their entertainment. There was something like competition among the would-be hosts, Everybody was glad of the chance of doing something, and anxious to show these Belgians what England thought of their plucky little country. Mister Brittling was proud to lead off a Mister Pont, a neat little bearded man in a black tailcoat, a black bowler hat, and a knitted muffler, with a large rucksack and a conspicuously foreign-looking bicycle, to the hospitalities of Dower House. Mister Vonderpant. Had escaped from antwerp at the eleventh hour he had caught a severe cold and it would seem lost his wife and family in the process he had much to tell mr britling and in his zeal to tell it he did not at once discover that though mr britling knew french quite well he did not know it very rapidly the dinner that night at the dower house marked a distinct fresh step in the approach of the great war to the old habits and securities of matching Easy, The war had indeed filled everyone's one's mind, to the exclusion of all other topics, since its very beginning. It had carried off Herr Heinrich to Germany, Teddy to London, and Hugh to Colchester. It had put a special brassard round Mr. Brittling's arm, and carried him out into the night, given Mrs. Brittling several certificates, and interrupted the frequent visits and gossip of Mr. Lawrence Carmine. But so far it had not established a direct contact between the life of Matching's Easy and the grim business of shot, shell, and bayonet at the front. But now here was the dower-house accomplishing wonderful idioms in Anglo-French, and an animated guest telling them, sometimes one understood clearly, and sometimes the meaning was clouded, OF MEN BLOWN TO PIECES UNDER HIS EYES, OF FRAGMENTS OF HUMAN BEINGS LYING ABOUT IN THE STREETS. THERE WAS TROUBLE OVER THE EXPRESSION HOMOPLATES D'UNE FEMME, UNTIL ONE OF THE YOUNGSTERS GOT THE DICTIONARY, AND FOUND OUT IT WAS THE SHOULDER-BLADE OF A WOMAN, OF POOLS OF BLOOD, EVERYWHERE, AND OF FLIGHT IN THE DARKNESS. MR. VONDERPONT HAD BEEN IN CHARGE OF THE DYNAMOS AT THE ANTWERP POWER-STATION, He had been keeping the electrified wires in the entanglements alive, and he had stuck to his post, until the German high explosives had shattered his wires, and rendered his dynamos useless. He gave vivid little pictures of the noises of the bombardment, of the dead lying casually in the open spaces, of the failure of the German guns to hit the bridge of boats across which the bulk of the defenders and refugees escaped he produced a little tourist's map of the city of Antwerp, and dotted at it with a pencil-case. The, what do you call, obou, ah, shells, fell so, and so, and so. Across here he had fled on his bicanna, and along here and here. He had carried off his rifle, and hid it with the rifles of various other Belgians, between floor and ceiling, of a house in Zeebrugge. He had found the pirate steamer in the harbour, its captain resolved to extract the uttermost fare out of every refugee he took to London. When they were all aboard and started, they found there was no food except the hard ration biscuits of some Belgian soldiers. They had portioned this out like shipwrecked people on a raft. The mare had been calm. Thank heaven. All night they had been pumping. He had helped with the pumps, but Mr. Vanderpont hoped still to get a reckoning with the captain of that ship. Mr. Vanderpont had had shots at various zeppelins when the zeppelins came to Antwerp. Everybody turned out on the roofs and shot at them. He was contemptuous of zeppelins he made derisive gestures to express his opinion of them. They could do nothing unless they came low and if they came low you could hit them. One which ventured down had been riddled. It had had to drop all its bombs. Luckily they fell in an open field, in order to make its lame escape. It was all nonsense to say, as the English papers did, that they took part in the final bombardment. Not a zeppelin! So he talked, and the Britling family listened, and understood as much as they could, and replied and questioned in Anglo-French. Here was a man who but a few days ago had been steering his bicycle in the streets of Antwerp to avoid shell-craters, pools of blood, and the torn-off arms and shoulder-blades of women. He had seen houses flaring, set afire by incendiary bombs, and once at a corner he had been knocked off his bicycle by the poof of a bursting shell. Not only were these things in the same world with us, they were sitting at our table. He told one grim story of an invalid woman unable to move, lying in bed in her appartement, and of how her husband went out on the balcony to look at the Zeppelin. There was a great noise of shooting. Ever and again he would put his head back into the room and tell her things, and then after a time he was silent, and looked in no more. She called to him and called again. Becoming frightened, she raised herself by a great effort and peered through the glass. At first she was too puzzled to understand what had happened. He was hanging over the front of the balcony, with his head twisted oddly. Twisted and shattered. He had been killed by shrapnel, fired from the outer fortifications. These are the things that happen in histories and stories. They do not happen at Matching Zizi. Mr. von der Pont did not seem to be angry with the Germans, but he manifestly regarded them as people to be killed. He denounced nothing that they had done. He related. They were just an evil accident that had happened to Belgium and mankind. They had to be destroyed, he gave mr britling an extraordinary persuasion that knives were being sharpened in every cellar in brussels and antwerp against the day of inevitable retreat of a resolution to exterminate the invader that was far too deep to be vindictive and the man was most amazingly unconquered mr britling perceived the label on his habitual dinner-wine with a slight embarrassment do you care he asked to drink a German wine. This is Bernkasteller, from the Moselle. Mr. von der Pont reflected. But it is a good wine, he said. After the peace it will be Belgian. Yes, if we are to be safe in the future from such a war as this, we must have our boundaries right up to the Rhine. So he sat and talked, flushed, and, as it were, elated by the vividness of all that he had undergone. He had no trace of tragic quality, no hint of subjugation. But for his costume and his trimmed beard and his language, he might have been a Dubliner or a Cockney. He was astonishingly cut off from all his belongings. His house in Antwerp was abandoned to the invader valuables and cherished objects, very skilfully buried in the garden. He had no change of clothing, except what the rucksack held. His only footwear were the boots he came in. He could not get on any of the slippers in the house, they were all too small for him, until suddenly Mrs. Britling bethought herself of Herr Heinrich's pair, still left unpacked upstairs. She produced them, and they fitted exactly. It seemed only poetical justice, a foretaste of national compensations, to annex them to Belgium forthwith. Also, it became manifest that Mr. Vonderpont was cut off from all his family. And suddenly he became briskly critical of the English way of doing things his wife and child had preceded him to England, crossing by Ostend and Folkestone a fortnight ago. Her parents had come in August. Both groups had been seized upon by improvised British organisations, and very thoroughly and completely lost. He had written to the Belgian embassy, and they had referred him to a committee in London, and the committee had begun its services, by discovering a madame von der hitherto unknown to him at Camberwell, and displaying a certain suspicion and hostility, when he said she would not do. There had been some futile telegrams. What, asked Mr. von der Pond, ought one to do? Mr. Brittling temporized by saying he would make inquiries, and put Mr. von der off for two days. Then he decided to go up to London with him, and make inquiries on the spot. Mr. von der Pont did not discover his family, but Mr. Brittling discovered the profound truth of a comment of Herr Heinrich's, which he had hitherto considered utterly trivial, but which had nevertheless stuck in his memory. "'The English,' Herr Heinrich had said, "'do not understand indexing. It is the root of all good organization.' finally mr Pont adopted the irregular course of asking every belgian he met if they had seen anyone from his district in antwerp if they had heard of the name of vanderpont if they had encountered so and so or so and so and by obstinacy and good fortune he really got on to the track of madame Pont. she had been carried off into kent and a day later the dower house was the scene of a happy reunion Madame was a slender lady, dressed well and plainly, with a Belgian common sense and a Catholic reserve, and André was like a child of wax, delicate and charming and unsubstantial. It seemed incredible that he could ever grow into anything so buoyant and incessant as his father. The Britling boys had to be warned not to damage him. A sitting-room was handed over to the Belgians for their private use, and for a time the two families settled into the dower-house side by side. Anglo-French became the table-language of the household. It hampered Mr. Britling very considerably. And both families set themselves to much unrecorded observation, much unspoken mutual criticism, and the exercise of great patience. It was tiresome for the English to be tied to a language that crippled all spontaneous talk, These linguistic gymnastics were fun to begin with, but soon they became very troublesome. And the Belgians suspected sensibilities in their hosts, and a vast unwritten code of etiquette that did not exist. At first they were always waiting, as it were, to be invited or told or included. They seemed always deferentially backing out from intrusions. Moreover, they would not at first reveal what food they liked, or what they didn't like, or whether they wanted more or less. But these difficulties were soon smoothed away. They anglicized quickly and cleverly. André grew bold and cheerful, and lost his first distrust of his rather older English playmates. Every day at lunch he produced a new, carefully prepared piece of English, though for some time he retained a marked preference for, "'Good morning, sir,' And thank you very much, over all other locutions, and fell back upon them on all possible and many impossible occasions. And he could do some sleight of hand tricks with remarkable skill and humor, and fold paper with quite astonishing results. Meanwhile, Mr. Vanderpont sought temporary employment in England, went for long rides upon his bicycle, exchanged views with Mr. Britling upon a variety of subjects, and became a wonderful player of hockey. He played hockey with an extraordinary zest and nimbleness. Always he played in the tailcoat, and the knitted muffler was never relinquished. He treated the game entirely as an occasion for quick tricks and personal agility. He bounded about the field like a kitten. He pirouetted suddenly. He leapt into the air and came down in new directions. His fresh-coloured face was alive with delight. The coat-tails and the muffler trailed and swished about breathlessly behind his agility. He never passed two other players. He never realized his appointed place in the game. He sought simply to make himself a leaping screen about the ball as he drove it towards the goal. But André he would not permit to play at all. And Madame played like a lady, like a Madonna, like a saint carrying the instrument of her martyrdom. The game and its enthusiasms flowed round her and receded from her. She remained quite valiant but tolerant, restrained, doing her best to do the extraordinary things required of her, but essentially a being of passive dignities, living chiefly for them. Letty, careering by her, keen and swift, was like a creature of a different species. Mr. Britling celebrated abundantly about these contrasts. "'What has been blown in among us by these German shells,' he said, "'is essentially a Catholic family, blown clean out of its setting—we who are really neo-Europeans. At first you imagine there is nothing separating us but language. Presently you find that language is the least of our separations—' These people are people living upon fundamentally different ideas from ours, ideas far more definite and complete than ours. You imagine that home in Antwerp as something much more rounded off, much more closed in, a cell, a real social unit, a different thing altogether from this place of meeting. Our boys play cheerfully with all comers. Little André hasn't learned to play with any outside children at all we must seem incredibly open to these von der a house without sides last sunday i could not find out the names of the two girls who came on bicycles and played so well they came with kitty Westrup, and von der wanted to know how they were related to us or how was it they came look at madame she's built on a fundamentally different plan from any of our womankind here Tennis, the bicycle, co-education, the two-step, the higher education of women. Say these things over to yourself, and think of her. It's like talking of a nun in riding breeches. She's a specialized woman, specializing in womanhood. Her sphere is the home. Soft, trailing, draping skirts, slow movements, a veiled face. For no Oriental veil could be more effectual than her beautiful Catholic quiet. Catholicism invented the invisible Perda. She is far more akin to that sweet little Indian lady with the wonderful robes, whom Carmine brought over with her tall husband last summer, than she is to Letty or Sissy. She too undertook to play hockey, and played it very much as Madame von der pont played it. The more I see of our hockey," said Mister Britling the more wonderful it seems to me, as a touchstone of character and culture and breeding. Mr. Manning, to whom he was delivering this discourse, switched him on to a new track, by asking what he meant by Neo-European. It's a bad phrase, said Mr. Brittling. I'll withdraw it. Let me try and state exactly what I have in mind. I mean something that is coming up in america and here and the scandinavian countries and russia a new culture an escape from the levantine religion and the catholic culture that came to us from the mediterranean let me drop neo-european let me say northern we are northerners the key the heart the nucleus and essence of every culture is its conception of the relations of men and women And this new culture tends to diminish the specialization of women as women, to let them out from the cell of the home, into common citizenship with men. It's a new culture, still in process of development, which will make men more social and cooperative, and women bolder, swifter, more responsible and less cloistered. It minimizes, instead of exaggerating, the importance of sex. And said mr britling in very much the tones in which a preacher might say sixthly it is just all this northern tendency that this world struggle is going to release this war is pounding through europe smashing up homes dispersing and mixing homes setting madame von der Pond playing hockey and andre climbing trees with my young ruffians it is killing young men by the millions altering the proportions of the sexes for a generation bringing women into business and office and industry, destroying the accumulated wealth that kept so many of them in refined idleness, flooding the world with strange doubts and novel ideas. End of Book Two, Chapter Two, Section Eight.